Hi, thanks for tuning in and welcome to the latest episode of Unspun, a podcast by Population, unraveling what's holding us back from regeneration and liberation in the fashion and home industries. I'm Lauren Hill. And I'm Catherine Tedrow. We're the founders of Population, a change agency blending the creative and strategic to embed an integrated approach to sustainability into brand, marketing, and business model strategy. We convene the much-needed conversations about systems change by centering stakeholders across the entire value chain, all the way from supply to demand, to co-create solutions to the biggest sustainability challenges facing our industry. This week's episode is part of our four-part capsule series, Fibers of Pactics. We'll be turning it over to Unspun contributor Kelsey Suchiyama and her colleague and head of marketing at Pactics, Dorian Vandermillen. Don't go away. They'll be right back after the break. I am Dorian van der Mullen, Marketing Manager at Pactix and responsible for all marketing activities of Pactix Group. I am passionate about sharing Pactix's unique story, tackling some of the major current challenges in fashion and lifestyle manufacturing, and specifically the role of marketing and communication in this. And I'm Kelsey Tuchiyama, and I've been working on projects related to supply chain relationships and marketing and communications at Pactix. I approach the industry with a human and women's rights lens, and I'm always eager to have conversations that can help cultivate a sustainable future. This is the final part of Fibers of Pactics, a four-part capsule series by Unspun, where we will explore manufacturing in Cambodia through the localized perspectives of employees at Pactics. We are considering what responsible production can look like and what this means for the future of manufacturing. This series has hopefully painted a picture of manufacturing in Cambodia and at Pactix in specific. We have learned some of the challenges facing the industry here and changes that need to occur. We've also noticed a common thread of community throughout all of it. In our final episode, we're going into the roots of Pactix together with Pactix Cambodia's first employee and with Pactix Group's founder and chairman. Today, we're speaking with Mr. Ben Nguyen Ning, also known as Wave, Pactix's factory manager, and Mr. Pete Holton, Pactix's founder and chairman. Wave has been with Pactix Cambodia since the beginning, and we are pleased that Wave and Pete are joining us to talk about the past, present, and future of Pactix. Wave, to start off, can you tell us a little bit about your background, please? I was born in uh, 1982 in uh, Pompong Cham, all my family moved to live in uh, Phnom Penh, capital city, when I was five years old. So I go to the school in uh, Phnom Penh. I study as faculty as uh, tourism, but only uh, two years in university, only uh, for associate uh, degree, because like, during that time, my family uh, economic is not so good. So I study two years in university, and then I start with, decide to be a driver since 2003. So after I spent uh, for a few years, so I can sell money to buy a car, become a taxi driver. And then uh, I meet Pete in uh, July 2010. And then uh, when I got the job with Pactic, I moved from Phnom uh, Penh to Sibir and also August 2010. Thank you very much. Pete, could you also tell us a little bit about your background, please, and specifically how this led to the origins of Pactics? So I was born in um, 1952, so I'm a little bit older than we, 
and um, I'm a mechanical engineer and I've been living in the Netherlands. I started my career there and then I moved to South Africa and from South Africa I moved to Malaysia and from Malaysia I moved to the US. So that's where I started in 2004 Factics. We started as a uh, trading company importing microfiber fabrics from China to a factory in Cambodia, oh sorry, in Mexico, that was making pouches for Oakley uh, in California. So that's how uh, Factics got started. In 2008, I started a factory in China to make these pouches for Oakley. We did two years production in, uh, in, in China with suppliers. And I was very disappointed with the working conditions in these plants and the reliability of the Chinese suppliers. There was always issues with delivery and quality, but the biggest problem was the working conditions. Uh, these factories were close to Shanghai and um, where the temperature in the summer can be over 40 degrees Celsius and in the winter it can freeze up to four or five degrees Celsius. These factories had no aircon, these factories had no heating, it was very bad ventilation. The whole, the whole setup was quite miserable. So that's why I started in 2008 in China. And then in 2010, I did a backpack trip with my son. And um, in that trip, we decided to go for one week to Cambodia. So it was a pleasure trip, but in the meantime, I wanted to see if Cambodia could be an option to set up a factory because I saw the end of cheap China appearing and wages went up very rapidly in China. Plus, it was harder and harder to get workers. Turnover was very high. So I was on the look for a second option. So that's how, uh, that's how I got into Cambodia for the first time. I've never been there. So July 2010, I landed in Phnom Penh. And Waif, you kind of, you mentioned that you met Pete in July of 2010 and then started working at Practics. Can you tell us the story of how the two of you met? When I became a taxi driver around uh, the factory here, I got one as a pit friend, uh, Mr. Matt Maxey. Uh, that is a friend of Pete, he lives in the United States and he visits uh, Cambodia often. So I become his driver, picked up from airport and dropped off uh, at airport. When uh, Pete came in July, so uh, Mr. Batmasi, he uh, booked me to pick up Pete from airport. This is how I meet uh, Pete but the first time uh, in Cambodia. So his, uh, he met me, the first Cambodian that we met. So oh. I tried for him around in Phnom Penh, come to see him and back to Phnom Penh almost one week. and then. Uh, I don't expect that he come again for business, but after one month, he came alone and then started to talk about the business. So I tried for him again after one month. Yeah, we was the first Cambodian after the immigration, very friendly immigration people and very friendly custom people I met in Cambodia. So he was the first real friendly Cambodian I met. So at the problem airport was Mr. Wave with his taxi. He drove us to the hotel. And um, we actually spent a week together. So um, he also drove us around Phnom Penh and I had a look at the factories around Phnom Penh and thought that that was also not a very happy site because um, the, the big garment companies at the outskirts of Phnom Penh and how the people were transported 
to the factories in open trucks and long hours living in dormitories. Um, I thought that was also not very pleasant, and it reminded me a lot of the situation I had seen in China before I started my own factory. And um, so I basically decided after two days that I've seen enough from uh, Phnom Penh and enough, and I had a no no good feel about starting a factory there. So I basically discarded the whole idea to move and started something to in Cambodia. So then to Siem Reap, and in Siem Reap, uh, we just went there to see the temple. That was the purpose to go to Siem Reap. So, um, so we drove from Phnom Penh with Mr. Wave to, uh, to Siem Reap, and we, uh, we had a very pleasant time in Siem Reap. I thought, why not start a factory in Siem Reap? Why does it have to be Phnom Penh? Uh, because in Phnom Penh, um, they bring a lot of workers from the province and they have to live in dormitories. So, because there's not enough people in Phnom Penh for all these big factories. Why not move the factory where the people live instead of moving the people to the factory? So when we build a, uh, a factory in Siem Reap, the workers can just go home, don't have to live in dormitories, have a social life, and, and can be with their kids, can be with their husbands, can be with their wives. Um, that's a much more pleasant situation than what is happening in Phnom Penh. So that's where I got the idea to start a factory in Siem Reap. And Pete, when you think, think back about uh, meeting meeting Wave uh, as a tech, taxi driver back then, what made you decide to involve him in uh, in setting up Pactix Cambodia? One reason, uh, he struck me as a very uh, smart guy, but not only smart, also a guy with determination. I mean, when you... When you have are studying in the university tourism, you have to stop to take care of your family, start a taxi company. Um, that means that as as a young person, you have uh, you have a good attitude, yeah. And he was very pleasant to deal with, and um, so that was one reason. The second reason was that we didn't know if it was going to work with the factory in Siem Reap. So we decided to start a pilot and try it out because we didn't know if we could get workers. We didn't know uh, how it would be with the government. Um, so in order to make sure that it was a good decision, we wanted to have a small setup that wouldn't cost too much money. And we were not sure if it's going to work. Now, um, I had the feeling that Wave could manage this. When it would fail, he could go back and be go back to his taxi company. So he didn't have to quit a job to come and work for us. So that was the second advantage. So the first one was I thought he could do the job. The second was there was not much risk involved. The only problem for him was he had to move to Siem Reap, which is for people from Phnom Penh, like a very, very bad thing. Yes, they think when they have to go to the province, it's not good. But um, so he had to leave all his friends and family behind, and that was was not so good for for him. 
So on the way back from the from Siem Reap to the airport in Phnom Penh, which was like a five, six hour drive, we, we discussed this a lot. And I said, how do I set up a company in Cambodia? Um, he said, I don't know, but I have a friend who works at the EU and uh, he probably knows more about this. So I asked him to call his friend, ask his friend to come to the airport because we had a couple of hours left before our flight. So I met his friend and he said, I have another friend who, uh, who knows everything about setting up companies. And so we had a coffee, lunch together. I asked them both to work out what it would take to set up a company in Sinweep, um, set up a company in Cambodia, uh, where do we have to go to apply for a, uh, uh, a license to set up a factory in, in Sinweep and everything. Um, I said, within a month, I would like to get a report from you. I will pay you for this, um, how, how this needs to be done. So end of August, I got their report with the very detailed how to set up a company, uh, with all the paper that we had to do. And then I came back to Seam Reap in middle of September 2010. And there, then we signed all the paperwork to set up a company. We had, we, this was my first experience with, uh, with how things work in Cambodia because we needed to set up a bank account. So in order to set up a company, you need a bank account. So I went to the bank and I said, I would like to open a bank account. But I said, bank says, that's fine. We want the private or business account. I said, we want a business account. They said, okay, can we have your business license? I said, no, no, I don't have a business license because to get a business license, I need a bank account. You remember that? Yeah, I remember. <laughs> Same. Yeah. That's why we so, go to a, a different bank. Yeah, yeah not, we not go to a couple of different mm -hmm. banks. And then finally we found one that would set up the bank account. And we had to pay a deposit to put into the, the account. And then uh, Mr. Shunat had found a uh, government official that on the side helped with setting up companies. So he made the M&A and uh, the company documents. We signed that in Scheme Reap. And then we had to go to the government to get the license to start the factory. And then we had the first pushback because the government in Scheme Reap said, we don't want factories in Scheme Reap. We are a tourist town. When you want to set up a factory, you have to go to Phnom Penh. So, uh, so that was the first problem we hit after we got the bank account. So uh, we decided to change it in a workshop. So now we have a workshop. Workshops were allowed in Simreep. And uh, we still have a workshop, not a factory, a workshop with 600 people. And that was okay. But still the workshop today. It's still a workshop today. <laughs> and God, what is in the name? Yes. Well, yeah. Sometimes so you have to be a little bit creative. <laughs> So it was both like the people and the government that were reluctant to the idea of a factory in scenery. Yeah, because it, it, it didn't exist. Yes, there were no factories. So, so everybody thought this is not a town for a factory. 
And yeah. I think a town for a factory is is a town where there are people. People are more, more way more important than than a building. Yes, and Siem Reap had plenty of land, um, and there were. The only, the only problem with Siem Reap is you cannot rent a factory building because that you can do in Phnom Penh. Of course, that doesn't exist. So, uh, so after we got all our paperwork done, we had to find a location. Remember that wave? Yeah, yeah. We cry around almost more than one year. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We cry around. Yeah. <laughs> But not the location for the for the pilot. We had to find something around Siem Reap where we could uh, set up the pilot with 15 people because we wanted to start very small. So in Street 26 yes. in Siem Reap, there was a uh, sewing shop and they made um, silk clothes for tourists. They had a shop downtown and then on Street 26, opposite of the Peace Cafe, they had a sewing shop on the second floor. I don't know how we found that place. Do you remember how you found that? Uh, I think uh, that's one maybe uh, maybe the owner of the hotel. Sorry, I really recommend you. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. So we asked around everywhere where we could soup. find yeah. where we could find a place. Yes. Ken, yeah. Ken Oshi yeah. from the Soria Mario Hotel. Yeah. He was Norwegian. Yeah. And uh, we asked him if he would know something. And he said, go to, go to this shop because they have sewing going on in 326. So we went to that shop. We met the, the owner there, a lady. And she brought us to the, the sewing place on the second floor. And there was a lot of space left because they didn't have much uh, work for these silk, silk uh, dresses. And um, so we could rent half of the second floor. And the good thing there was it was already set up as a sewing shop. So the electricity was there, the lightning was there. So we didn't have to do a lot of renovations to, to start there. So when I was there in September, uh, I signed all the paper. And we signed the lease contract. We paid $300 a month for that place. And we made Mr. Wave the general manager. And then uh, uh, two weeks later, we started. First of October, we started with 15 people. And, and wait, what did you think of the idea of manufacturing and scenery? When Peter offered me a job, I said, uh, you see, I have a ability to work uh, with him, but he said that if you're willing to learn, he will take me. So uh, I decided, yes, I will do because uh, you expect me that I can do it. And uh, yes. When we starting the first starting, we uh, within the room and then we start set up a little bit like uh, install uh, sewing machine. We buy the machine from the local uh, six machine, and then uh, after install set up already, uh, I went to Shanghai uh, to see the factory in Shanghai, uh, and then I spent uh, five day in five day in the factory to learn the process. How to work and uh, to uh, how the machine running, the product running, also. And then, uh, yes, this is uh, uh, my first time in the factory, <laughs> not in Cambodia, but in China for training. Yeah, yeah, yeah Mr. Wave came to China. He, yes. For the first time, saw a very big town. 
So one of the things you mentioned, especially in, in the idea of starting this factory and something that we've talked about in previous conversations with our guests, the pleasant working environment, both referring to just being safe here, as well as, you know, the warm environment created by the people and the sense of family. So Pete, how do you ensure this is upheld? Uh, it's, it's part of our DNA, I would say. You see, I think it's a, it's a fundamental right of a worker that the, uh, that the work environment is safe and healthy. Yes? And, uh, and I think as an employer, you have to make uh, sure that that is, is there. So uh, from day one, with everything we do, we made sure that the environment is, is, is safe and healthy. Um, so we use a lot of safety equipment, and that is mandatory. The machines that we buy in China first go to our um, Wuxi factory in China. We have a small setup in China. And then there we have uh, engineers that will make sure there is sufficient safety on the machines before they come to Cambodia. So we don't, it's the opposite what the Chinese and the Chinese factories do, because the first thing a Chinese, uh, the Chinese do is take all the safety off the machine because it slows the workers down. And we do the, we do the total opposite because we put more safety on the machine. When you look at our embossing machines, they even have double safety on a light screen and a mechanical safety. So that's part of, of the way we operate. And, and that is in, yeah, in our, our DNA, that is in our handbooks, that is in the way in all our operating procedures, safety is, is on top and, and also the health of the workers. The other thing is that when I started to deal with the government in Siem Reap or in Cambodia, um, everybody told me that I had to pay. Uh, and I said, what do you mean I have to pay? Yeah, you have to give the officer some money, otherwise they will not help you. I said, but the officer gets salary, so why should I give him more money? Uh, I said, I don't give officer any money when I don't get an invoice. Oh, no, 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 they don't give invoices in Cambodia. I said, when they don't give invoices, they don't get money from me. And everybody said, yeah, but then, then you cannot work here. Yes, that is just impossible. And from day one, we have not paid. Yes. And uh, we had lots of issues with government officials, but uh, we, have, uh, we have never paid. So we have never paid any illegal uh, fees. And, and, and that was a very, very eye-opening for all of the Cambodian uh, employees we had. Because everybody thought that that was normal. And we teach them that was definitely not normal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they, and now, yeah, they, they are very strict. So when they, when they go somewhere and the government asks for some money, they said, you know, I work for Pactics. We don't pay. And all the Cambodians do that now that work for us. So it's, it's a matter of how you upheld that. That's that, that just a matter of, Building that in the way we work, yes? So our, our, our employees know 
that safety is a requirement. And when it slows down the work a little bit, then that is that is that should be it. Yes, safety is more important than speed. And uh, and that's that's simply how we do things. And wait, did you were you surprised when tactics wasn't paying the government? Is that something that you were surprised about? Uh, uh, not so much because, uh, like, uh, I see uh, for the European people and uh, Western people, they don't like this. So, uh, like, I study factory tourism, and I know some tourists, a lot of uh, tourists that they don't lie about this. When, like, when uh, I get fined by a traffic police, and then I give, like, $5, and then no ticket, and then... Uh, my customer try to ask why you pay money, but you don't get the ticket. So this is a point that I learned from my career when I started a driver. So I know that uh, most of the Western people they don't like the the prep or yes mm-hmm. uh, corruption or something like that. So this is the way that uh, I'm happy to work with Patrick because of the uh, reason. And the other thing about because uh, most of the factory in Cambodia mostly is uh, run by before a lot of Chinese. Now they have some Korean or something like that. But the the if you hear the name of the factory is run by Chinese people, the working condition or something not so good. That's why uh, I got a change that hit, uh, we run a factory in Sydney. I said. This is a the good sample for other factory to see also because uh, we are a factory but like our uh, factory uh, similar to a resort and our working condition and all the employee get trained uh, regularly or something like that. This is a this is a completely different what the factory that have not uh, the factory is not not so have. A good name or something like that, but now we make some factory that's when the some people visit here, they always said, Wow, <laughs> I don't believe that this kind of factory. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we are we are called in Simrip the Pactics Resort <laughs> <laughs> with a pool and a nice garden and <laughs> yes, 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 subsidized yes. lunch, serve, yeah. Them. yeah. Yeah, I, that's a, a theme that's come up, I think. Yeah. Tactics Resort. <laughs> um, so in a previous episode of Unspun, Aryan talked about some characteristics of relationships between suppliers and brands. And he also explained why tactics approach and emphasis on partnerships is so important. So uh, Pete, what's your take on this? Particularly in terms of employee well-being and the working environment. Yeah, that again, we have two types of customers. We have customers that that and and that those are the 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 newer customers because those we select now very carefully. You see, we got started with producing for Oakley, and Oakley was an independent company at that time. Then Oakley got acquired by Luxottica. Luxottica is the biggest eyewear company in the world with 16 billion in turnover. And, and they basically have almost a monopoly on designer uh, sunglasses. So that was our largest customer. Yes, we, we 
in, in a certain moment, we had 85, 90% of our turnover was going to Luxottica. And with Luxottica, with these big firms, they, in name, yes, when you look at their, their supplier uh, agreements and when you look at their um, compliance, um, it looks all very nice. And you think that these companies are uh, fine working conditions and everything important. But when it comes to the actual operating of these companies, the purchasing departments that we have to deal with are only interested in one thing, and that is the lowest price. And the purchasing people in these larger companies have no responsibility to find suppliers that are compliant because they have that in the compliance department. So what they do very often is that when, a, when they have a supplier that can give them a good price, but they are not 100% compliant, they put a trader in between. So then the supplier is not becoming a supplier for the company, but the trader becomes a supplier for the company. And then they hide a supplier, a factory that is not compliant. And, and that is with, with a lot of the large, and not all of them, but a lot of the large companies, that is how they operate. And of course, there are very good ones like Patagonia and VF, the, 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 the owners of North Face, for example, that keep uh, a very good control over the supply chain. Uh, but there are others that have a much more loose control over the supply chain. So what we try to do is find customers that find it important to work with a supplier that is compliant. And not just in name, but also in practicality. And that you find more in the smaller companies, because there you don't have a separate compliance department. There everything is more integrated than in the large companies. So with the smaller companies, we can... With our new customers, we can build way more better partnerships and they understand that sometimes we are a little bit more expensive, but in return, they can use us in their marketing. Plus, for those customers, we make their main product. For Luxottica, we just make packaging, yes? I mean, we make a cloth and a pouch, which is an accessory to their main product, which is the eyewear. Yeah, I mean, when you buy a pair of Ray-Ban sunglasses, our cloth is, is just a small piece. So you, you, you don't make the main product for a customer. When you look at uh, Elabbo, we make their main product. When you look at Chico, we make their main product. Yeah, And, and, and for the, those companies, it's much easier to, to form these partnerships. And they're also the ones who care about employee well-being and the conditions that not, not all of them, but the ones that we select, yes. Mm -hmm. Because we, we try to find a match between what we find important and what they find important. So that's how you approach these partnerships and looking for these partnerships. Yes, we are looking for companies that, that find the same things important. Mm -hmm. And we rank them on that way, yes. So we have like when we have prospects, we look at certain attributes of the prospect and they can we score them on that way that means 
that a customer that scores very high or prospect that scores very high, we will put more time and effort in making samples, uh, working with the customer than a prospect that scores lower. This approach to partnership speed and finding customers whose values align with ours, uh, this is really a development that has been happening in the, in the past few years. Is that correct? Yes, because we saw that our values were, um, were important, but not the main, the main thing for, for our largest customer. You know, our largest customer was more interested in a lower price than all the others. So we said when when we when we want to become less dependent of one customer, then we have to find better. We have to find other customers where we can align our values better. And Wave, a little bit in line with that, like how have you experienced, you know, in your in all the years that you've been with Pectics, how have how have you experienced the changes that have taken place here at yeah, we change a lot, uh, and especially uh, like we start from the small part and clock. Now we uh, really become like mineral factoring our producer backpack. But I don't expect that we can do it. We change from the small product with the microfiber. It's a simply a soft product, but now we go to the the big product like a, a backpack or something, and then we can do it by our current employee that they 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 can uh, they can uh, upgrade their skill become for they can work with the normal sewing machine to a uh, uh, bigger machine so this is uh, I really uh, admire us uh, our employee now and that that has been a very long road yes. You should understand that when we started in Simrip and we hired the first uh, six sewers, they were not experienced in sewing because you see in Phnom Penh, you can hire people that have worked in, in sewing factories before. In, 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 in Simrip, you cannot hire anybody that worked in sewing factories before. So when we started with the first six people and I got the first reports from the production from Wave, it was a total disaster. Yes. I mean, the, the, the pouches we were making, we were making the black pouches for Oakley. That was the first product we started in Simrip. And we, we shipped the cut fabric from China. Um, the only thing they did in, in, in Simrip was the assembly. So they didn't know how to do any cutting, but we didn't have space in that place for the cutting machine. And then uh, the, the sewers in China, uh, they were making like, 2,000, 2,500 bags a day. And, and in, in uh, Simrip, they managed to produce 500 a day. <laughs> so the, the wages were a little bit less in Simrip, but not that much less to, uh, to pay for this. So this was, this was how we started. So then we decided to take one of the sewers from China, Miss Chen. You remember that wave? Yeah, Ms. I remember. Chen, had to come to Cambodia. Now, Miss Chen was quite experienced in sewing. She she made close to three thousand bags a minute or uh, a day, and she traveled together with me to Siem Reap. 
But uh, Miss Chen stayed for a week and, and, and helped and teach. And that's, that's how we, that's how we yeah, basically teach. And, and, and that's what something we have continuously been doing. Yes. You, and not everybody can be the same speed. Yes. And not everybody has the same skills. But when people are, are willing to learn, we can offer quite some, some upgrade in skills and also in, uh, in salary. So one of the objectives we have in the company that we have a career path in the company. So you can basically come in as an unskilled worker. You have never had any working experience. You can start with uh, folding the clots, for example, or... Some, some simpler jobs. And then we have our own sewing school in the factory. So there you can start learning more. And when you want to upgrade, some people just are happy with folding cloths and, 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 and don't want to learn more. But some people are, are more ambitious, so they, they want to learn sewing, so they can go to the sewing class. And then with sewing, we also have different levels. Yes, when you make... A Oakley bag is a different level than when you make an Anadbo backpack. Yeah, that's a huge uh, difference in skills. So that's how we upgrade. And we also found that people from Seam Reef working in, in Phnom Penh in the, in the garment factories, we got some that, that came back to Seam Reef and now work for us. So we also managed to attract some already skilled workers from, from Phnom Penh to come back to Seam Reef. Yeah. Do you wave if you think about you know um, how the company has developed in the in in the years um, and diversifying the portfolio, uh, especially in the last few years? Um, how do you how do you uh, look at the future for Pactics? Um and what do you hope for the future of uh, of the company? Uh. I hope uh, we have become a real manufacturing for produce uh, backpack because for backpack is an uh, expensive product that uh, we can make and then uh, cost look like uh, the uh, product for Luxottica or something look like uh, still uh, small volume and uh, not uh, spend anymore. I think with the last two years, it's almost... Uh, not only uh, increase, only uh, decrease. So, uh, hope for uh, all the new product like backpack or travel pack and new customer can. We uh, uh, hope that we can make it because now we are producing the elbow bag with the uh, uh, fake uh, leather, the appropriate we are producing. So, hope more product like this, we can uh, uh, get more people and we can be. Uh, 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 more bidding. What do you, as as the founder and chairman of the company, hope for the future of tactics? We have to grow. Yes, in order to survive, we have to grow. Um, and the reason is that currently our overheads are too high compared to our turnover. It's a very simple thing. You need certain skills, and those skills cost money. You cannot just hire a half person. You need always a full-time person with those skills. So growth is a uh, necessity for tactics. When we can um, grow to 10, 12 million, 
then uh, we are uh, very profitable. Now, that growth should come from um, customers that share our values. Yes? So that's what we have been doing over the last 18 months, is put a lot of time and effort in uh, marketing and awareness about tactics. And, and now we see that that is really working. We have a very solid list of prospects. We, have, we are converting some of them to have, we already have converted into customers and are more in the pipeline that are getting close to getting converted. So the growth is coming. The growth means more people. The growth also means that we need more space. Now, luckily, we have uh, 20,000 square meters, of which only 10 is used. So we can easily double. And uh, on, the, on in the same spot where we are now, and we are looking at uh, financing to basically uh, realize that growth. Now, long term, how do I see the future of tactics? My uh, my ultimate dream is that tactics is run in Cambodian. Why do you, why do you want to make to make it 100% Cambodian? If I may ask, you see everybody you talk to um, that has a factory, and I talk to quite a number of owners of of factories in Cambodia, um, and they're all foreigners. They say the Cambodians cannot do anything. Yeah, you can only use them as as low skilled workers. Um, all the Chinese companies that operate in Cambodia have Chinese upper and middle management. Yes, and and only, they only hire Cambodians uh, as workers. That's how they call it. And and I don't think that is correct. So we're going to move to our closing questions now. Pete, you've mentioned a lot of you've seen a lot in manufacturing in China, Phnom Penh, Vietnam, and have talked about some of the changes that should be happening and you know the values of tactics and, and upholding good working conditions. So what's the number one question you're asking the industry right now in order to achieve real change? The industry will not change. I mean, myself and so many factory owners, we all with the back to the wall, yes? It's, it's, it's a take it or leave it scenario. Yes, when you don't lower the price or don't make it for this price, you won't get the order. <laughs> and we have 600 employees that need work. Yes. So what do you do? So the industry is not going to change. The only, the only people that can change what is happening are the consumers. So then what question should we be asking consumers? Drive. The consumer should realize that when he buys a T-shirt for $3, that that cannot be made responsible, yes? That awareness should should come at consumers. When we look at, at, at apparel, everybody thinks that a T-shirt of $3 is normal. We have to go back that apparel becomes a, a, a product of value and not a throwaway product that you wear once and throw away. And you see what is, what I mean, after oil, textile is the most polluting industry in the world. And why is that? 
because we consumers, yes, are are I want new clothes every every two days, and 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 the industry is is trying to give clothes as cheap as possible, and that will never change the working conditions in these factories. So the consumer has to start realizing that when they that that they can't buy stuff for these prices anymore. So the change and, and why do you need a hundred t-shirts? That consumers are buying too much clothes is clear because otherwise not so many clothes would be thrown away. Mm-hmm. Mountains exist. Did you see that that report about the the desert in Chile, filled with with clothes that are thrown away? So you think that a change in consumer behavior is the most important thing to? That's the key. That is the key. You think you think companies like Zara and H&M are going to change as long as consumers keep buying this? How do you uh, look at this wave from your perspective at the industry? If there would be one thing that you could change about the industry, what would it be? Uh, for, for the industry in Cambodia? Uh, I can say two uh, options. The one is about the working condition, uh, working condition about hair safety, especially uh, the transportation of the the worker as a that of the industry. They still not good, and they still have the the number of accidents is still high. Also, uh, in Cambodia, so I hope. Uh, we think about the the safety on the road of the worker. I think this program may be run by some other NGO or something like that, or other organization. Not not sure, but this is my concern because I see almost every day. But if you're talking uh, really uh, check about the industry, maybe the uh, the automation, because when we Want to uh, competition with the prime? The prime. We need to uh, to add some machine that can produce more compared to other. And uh, the some machine sometimes now can uh, replace the people, but I'm not mean that we need to be a machine and kick out the people. No, it's mean because uh, this is the preventing also because uh, when we have a meeting with Chima uh, two months ago, they said that. Uh, some factory in Phnom Penh now they don't have enough worker. Look like the number of the worker, the labor, the look like uh, difficult to hire to hire more worker in Phnom Penh now, and some going around the Phnom Penh also. And the reason maybe uh, the COVID situation, some after the people leave the factory, they don't want to come back because uh, sometimes they can change their habit to. Uh, Back to like to become a farmer or grow uh, some vegetable uh, or something like that. Yeah. So uh, for the industry for the future, we need more thinking about the machinery, the automate about the machinery. Mm-hmm. So Cambodia can stay competitive in manufacturing, and our, yes, our- and automation also means higher salaries. Yes. Yep. Yeah, sure, yeah. So you, uh, you, you replace uh, very low-skilled, yeah, less-paid jobs with machines, and then you can upgrade your people 
to do more advanced jobs that you can't automate. And, and with that, they can make more money. And finally, so an unspun hero is someone who is doing great work in the industry or been important in your career that you would love to give a shout out to. So Pete, who is your unspun hero? One I can think of is, is uh, the lady that runs Stonley in, in Phnom Penh. You remember her name, Dorian? Rachel Fowler? Rachel, Rachel, yes. Yeah. So I think she does a, an unbelievable job in, in keeping that basically zero waste uh, company running and, and, and using fabrics, cut off fabrics or leftover fabrics. I think that's a great concept. I've seen a shop in in, uh, in uh, San Francisco. I, I I visited her there. Yeah, and and how she does that all on her own is uh, is quite amazing. She has no financial backing. She has done everything um, uh, organic. Uh, grow that company and keep it alive even during the difficult times uh, with COVID. So. Uh, that's one person that I, I, uh, I admire in the in the work she does. And for you, Wave, who is someone uh, to you who is doing great work in the industry, or for example, has been important in your career that you would like to give a shout out to? My husband hero uh, is Pete because he uh, do a, a great job, and now he's uh, he still continue uh, updating. Like we have a new uh, design uh, offer that or something like that. He always involved, especially about the automation, about the machine that uh, we order to uh, up to that with the new product. Yeah. And especially as uh, he's an owner of the new factory, but he's not thinking about the, uh, the benefit, but he's uh, thinking about the long term, uh, uh, long term for the industry also because I I remember about maybe uh, around 2013 or 2015, Pete gave a presentation to the local people in Simbria with the partner. So he talking about uh, how the fabric make it and when the fabric made it is just a lot of worker or something like that. I'm almost forget, but. It's a nice presentation that I remember, and I really admired about the thinking about the environment, thinking about yeah, the long term uh, business. Well, thank you for sharing both, and thank you, Pete, for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. Yeah, was, thank uh, you for inviting us. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of Unspun, The Fibers of Pactix, a capsule collection sponsored by Pactix and produced by Population. Huge thanks to the employees and management of Pactix for sharing their perspectives on the industry. We're especially grateful to Kelsey Suchiyama and Dorian Vandermolen for the huge effort it took to pull together this capsule collection. You can learn more about Pactix on their website, Pactix, P-A-C-T-I-C-S.com. To join the conversation, follow us on Instagram at wearepopulation or visit our website, wearepopulation.com. You can find Unspun on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts.